This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we're coming to you from Caracas, Venezuela, and you may hear cars, sirens, and even music from the busy city around us during our program. We'll be covering the current state of affairs here in Venezuela, but first, we go to our studios in Washington, D.C. Kurt Devine is there with this week's review of news from around Latin America. Mexico's Senate passed a sweeping education reform bill despite widespread protests from students and unionized teachers. The bill mandates a standardized system of test-based hiring and promotion for teachers. The Senate voted 102 to 22 in favor of the reform, giving President Enrique Peña Nieto a landmark legislative victory. Peña Nieto defended his ambitions for extensive reform. The government of the Republic is driving changes that the majority of Mexicans know must be done, changes that are necessary and must be supported. Supporters of the education bill believe it will reduce union control of school faculties and stop the corrupt sale and inheritance of teaching positions. Mexican security forces detained the suspected leader of the Juarez drug cartel. The arrest of Alberto Carrillo Fuentes, also known as Ugly Betty, marks the third takedown of a high-profile cartel boss since July. Fuentes faces charges of murder, drug trafficking, and organized crime. Battles with groups such as the Sinaloa cartel have weakened the Juarez cartel in recent years, but its members continue to control smuggling routes in parts of northern Mexico. The U.S. National Security Agency, the NSA, is accused of spying on the presidents of Brazil and Mexico. The two countries are calling on the U.S. for explanations. Stories in the British media outlet The Guardian say the NSA intercepted Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff's internet data along with communications from Mexican President Peña Nieto. The U.S. has neither confirmed nor denied the allegations made by Rio de Janeiro-based journalist Glenn Greenwald. Greenwald says the NSA program allows access to telephone, internet, and social network exchanges between Brazil's president and her staff. The Brazilian Senate is assembling a special committee to investigate the claims. The information originated from secret files obtained by U.S. whistleblower Edward Snowden. More than half of Venezuela lost power when a transmission line malfunctioned this week. The blackout affected at least 70% of Venezuela and caused chaos by disabling traffic lights and disrupting underground transportation. The central government blamed unidentified enemies for the outage. Governmental critics accuse state utility companies of indirectly causing the outage through mismanagement. Opposition leader Enrique Cabriles says the government is trying to divert attention away from its own incompetencies. Many Venezuelans have used social media to call for the resignation of the country's electrical energy minister. Venezuelan authorities have previously rationed power and enacted high surcharges on heavy electricity users to balance the nation's unstable power grid. We'll have more from Venezuela later on the program. For those listeners in the Washington, D.C. area, American University's Katzen Arts Center will sponsor a special exhibition beginning September 11th. The exhibition of Chilean tapestries remembers victims of that country's Pinochet dictatorship. 
The Reverend Joe Eldridge of American University is one of the organizers of the exhibition of the tapestries. They were smuggled out of Chile and they were sold to provide, it's kind of a social, a social enterprise, they were sold to provide some support to the victims of the violence in Chile. Chile's Truth and Reconciliation Commission noted in 2011 that more than 40,000 people were victims of repression under the Pinochet regime. That total includes more than 3,000 people who were killed by the regime. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. During this visit to Caracas, we spent time with journalists discussing government pressure to limit free expression. We interviewed Jesus Alberto Yahure of the investigative team for Cadena Capriles, one of the most successful chains of media outlets in the country. We spoke to him in the chain's newsroom in Caracas. It's very hard to define or, or probably um, say that there is freedom of expression or not. Uh, I think we, we can't talk in terms of black and white because uh, uh, even though we can say whatever we want, uh, there's always a pressure no, on media and journalists. Uh, and there's constant um, censorship uh, to see what you publish and being careful not to step on toes and and it's it's become very difficult for journalists in Venezuela to investigate crime a uh, crime organized crime corruption mostly because it involves uh, government um, uh, drug trafficking so there's a couple issues that you know, it's very difficult for us to investigate and, and publish, and there's always uh, from the government pressure on media and media owners and and journalists and and especially the the attempt of demonize uh, some journalists or, or some publishings. Uh, so it's very difficult. You, you can't say for sure that there is not uh, freedom of expression, or, or you can't say that there, there is no but um, it's always something that we have to deal with uh, the pressures of, of the work no? people are going to hear that that you work for cadena capriles and immediately say that that you represent the opposition here in venezuela so what do you say to that well it, it, that's a misknowledge or, or, or lack of knowledge of of the people say that this is a media that is not related in any way to uh, Mr. Enrique Capriles, which is uh, the, the great uh, opposer uh, of the government now, but um, it's a family and it has the same name, so uh, probably lack, lack of knowledge, that's something that we always have to deal with when we go to the street and, and say the people all oh, Cadena Caprillo just has nothing to do with it yeah so there's great still polarization here in Venezuela after the elections oh absolutely yeah especially um, with the results of the election uh, with Chavez there was always a, an environment of polarization and uh, and the the society kind of merged into two ideas uh, as a capi capitalism or socialism uh, there was always a lot of uh, um, ideology in the in the speeches and, and the information you no know? but um what what's happening now is that there there was a small a small part or proportion of the population that stayed kind of in the middle 
and now with uh, Chavez's death and, uh, and Maduro uh, winning with uh, s such a slightest, uh, uh, what, what can I say, it's a, margin. a slighter margin, um, it's kind of uh, very difficult for people to stay in the middle and have a, a centrist uh, position. So it's kind of either uh, pro-government or opposition. Uh, and that, that makes it very difficult for us to try to uh, find some consensus or, or dialogue between both uh, uh, currents, uh, I would say. Is there any consensus or any dialogue between the different camps in Venezuela? Uh, there's attempts, uh, I would say, um, especially in communities. Uh, and organizations uh, that does not depend don't depend on government or or political parties. Um, uh, we have a, a lot of NGOs that try to promote uh, dialogue or or, or even um, discussion uh, of the issues that affect them in the country and and try to solve them, uh, letting the politics uh, out of it. You know, but. Uh, um, in the political arena in Venezuela, there's, there's not happening very much. Uh, uh, there's always fighting and there's always a pulling, you know, for, from one side to the other way and try to um, control or send uh, messages to the public opinion. Are the media part of that polarization? Do they help create the polarization? Well, uh, that, that's... Um, that's a tricky question, I would say, or, or probably not, because, um, well, the, the thing is, that what, what I think is that the government has made it very difficult, because it, it has a, a huge apparatus of, of media and newspapers, radio stations and TV stations that only um, kind of uh, send the message of the government and the other part of the population that that's not you know doesn't always uh, agree with it with it uh, are left aside so for uh, independent media it's very difficult to find um, to find middle middle grounds in a context or in a in a, a scenario where the state or the government controls most of the media no? and uh, also pressures the independent media. So I think the, uh, the trick part is uh, independent to stay independent and the government to open up a little and, and try to have some, some ideas that might be critic of the, of the government and, and open dialogue and there, there can be balance in both of them. Uh, so you mentioned pressures, and early in the conversation you mentioned censorship. Is it direct censorship? How does the censorship work? Right now in Venezuela, we have uh, probably five or uh, or six uh, newspapers that are closing because uh, they can't get uh, access to uh, government uh, dollars. Uh, to go outside and buy paper for their publications, and uh, uh, it has a lot to do with the um, the editorial line of uh, of the of the media, and um, it's it's very difficult when you see also um, government officials uh, 
address journalists in, in very in a language that that's not you know typical of uh, or what you would expect of a of a government official you know there's always aggressions and there's always um, uh, name calling and this and that and uh, that makes it difficult especially on Twitter and and social media that uh, government officials have uh, you know participation in they, they always you know unconsciously you know attacking journalists and demonizing journalists for what they're for what they're doing for what for their work so it's kind of hard no the supporters of the Maduro government and supporters of the President Chavez, late President Chavez, would say that that this government has worked and been successful in making the country more equitable. And before the coup in 2002, that the media were very closed to lots of different points of view. How, how do you respond to that? Uh, I, I'll have to say that probably true. Uh, you know, me, me before the 2002 uh, coup. Uh, Media was a kind of um, related to to a lot of uh, was what's been you know happening in the in the country now, and um, so there there were political concessions that the media made then to political powers that opposed Chavez. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And there's no, I don't have doubt about it. So, so that kind so you're of, saying that's changed. Uh, yeah, it's changed a little, a little. Because before uh, before 2002, I know that uh, that there was an involvement, you know, of me, and we all know it, and we all recognize that there was involvement in the in the coup or, or what was happening. You know, the media were part of the coup. Yeah, but after that, uh, there was a process of uh, probably Chavez and the government tried to control a lot. So a lot of uh, media was trying to find the essence uh, of their work and trying to um, do a better job with the people and relating to the people because uh, that's what's most important, I, I think. If you, if you uh, do your work for the people, people would appreciate that uh, and uh, be grateful for it and try to build that connection. And, uh, Thank you very much, Jesus Alberto Yahure of the investigative team at Cadena Cabrillas, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. In a short footnote, the Cabrillas family, sometimes identified with Venezuela's opposition, recently sold its media properties to new investors with more of a neutral political view. We'll have more from a political expert on Venezuela who joins us via Skype in a moment. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. We asked Professor Alejandro Velasco of New York University to join us via Skype from New York City for his analysis of Venezuela. He's the author of the forthcoming book, A Weapon as Powerful as the Vote. Here are excerpts from our conversation. 
after a period of a tre- of tremendous instability having to do with the closeness of the elections, which followed on the heels of the death of Hugo Chavez, who of course had a larger-than-life presence in Venezuela, um, there has been over the last month, I would say perhaps two, um, a sense that the Maduro administration has um, at least resolved some of the major questions surrounding its legitimacy, um, some of the issues surrounding its conflicts with um, uh, with international partners, um, those issues have been largely resolved. Um, and so now with Maduro and his administration have been turning towards our issues of, um, of real policy, policy meat, in particular having to do with um, a very highly, high, high, high profile um, uh, anti-corruption um, campaign as well as uh, another high profile anti crime campaign, both of which were issues that under Chavez um, were not actually really discussed or addressed in a very significant way. So um, in that sense, he seems to be finding his stride. On the other hand, there are lingering issues uh, from within the ranks of, of Chavismo having to do with um, the, the strength, not just of Maduro's leadership within Chavismo, but also the relationship between social movements, um, base groups, etc., and the central administration. Um, and those have elicited some really interesting um, dynamics over the past just even a couple of weeks, having to do with the, the communes and the communal um, council system. Um, and the extent to which the government, as had been um, anticipated by Chavez before his death, but really in terms of actual steps had not been carried out, to what extent the government was going to cede more resources and terrain to communes at the local level um, uh, at the sacrifice of some of the national level control. We certainly saw the Maduro administration use the military as a weapon to try to bring crime and the crime rates in Venezuela, which have been soaring Uh, down. But tell us a little bit more about this corruption campaign. Has it been as successful? And corruption is certainly something that um, Amnesty International, uh, other human rights groups, and and Transparency International would point to as as problems inside Venezuela. Uh, Not just them, everyone in Venezuela, even the most ardent Chavista, would, um, would identify it as a significant problem. And in part, it has to do precisely with the um, this, the level of centralization that characterized the Chavez administration, especially having to do with policy initiatives, um, and then dovetailing with the influx of oil dollars that came as a result of the, the rise of, of international oil prices over the last 10 years. What that's meant is that there's been a windfall on revenues, a tremendous amount of policy initiatives directed at um, distribution of those resources, but very little oversight. Um, and so the, you know, the very the much uh, vaunted um, social programs, the so-called missions, misiones, um, of which now there are dozens and dozens, um, all of those, you know, in some cases, report directly to the presidency. Um, in some cases, they have a little bit of congressional oversight, but they really control a tremendous amount of cash um, with very little oversight in terms of how that gets distributed. And so that's resulted in some both high-profile, but even just everyday sort of routine levels of, of corruption and inefficiency, which, um, which erode um, confidence and, and trust in terms of, um, of institutions. And that's not just in terms of the opposition, but also among Chavista supporters. Um, and so I think Maduro has been really shrewd in terms of recognizing that he needs to attack this problem centrally um, precisely as a way to attend not to opposition concerns because after all nothing that Maduro is going to do is going to placate the opposition 
but really to attend to those grumblings in the camp of, of Chavistas. Um, and so it, it's extremely soon too early to tell whether um, the measures that he's um, put forth to, uh, as yet have had um, any significant structural impact. It has been notable in part because it's been talked about so much in contrast to what had been talked about under Chavez. It has also been notable that there have been some really high-profile um, uh, arrests and detentions made within the ranks of, of people who would otherwise be considered Chavistas. Um, it's also been notable that one of the um, people that has been placed in charge of this campaign is um, uh, is a, uh, a very well-known um, uh, sort of radical revolutionary leftist figure, um, which give um, gave a lot of credibility to to the campaign, especially among Chavistas. On the other hand, there's been some increasing signs that um, about a politicization of this campaign, so um, opposition figures being targeted. Um, the extent to which, of course, it, you know, the allegations are true or not have to be litigated, but um, there is that claim, right, that there's a politicization of, of the, the anti-corruption campaign. And most recently, it's been the call by Maduro to solicit um, uh, extra powers, um, the so-called habilitante, that would allow him to more directly and without um, interference from Congress to enact uh, policy measures to combat um, corruption. And in that sense, he is in a little bit of a pickle because he does not control the majority, the supermajority necessary to um, for Congress to give him that those powers. So therefore, he needs at least one vote from the opposition um, in order to, to be granted those powers. Because you bring up the Venezuelan Congress, and because as you open this discussion, you talked about President Nicolas Maduro and his ability to control different currents within socialism in Venezuela, different currents within Chavismo. Um, are we referencing competition from Diosdado Cabello or others in the Congress? Um, and how has Maduro dealt with that competition? Mm-hmm. Yes, to some extent we are. I am referencing that um, that competition, which in broad strokes has to do with a, at least had been seen as a, as a um, division of sorts between a civilian wing represented by Nicolas, Nicolas Maduro and his trade unionist um, background and the military wing represented by Diosdado Cabello and his own military background, which of course is the, the background that Chavez shared. Um, and so there... That had have, you know, that has some currency that that tension between the two. Although one of the things that have been interesting, especially in the we- in the weeks right after the contested elections in April, is that um, it was Cabello actually who emerged most forcefully as the so-called sort of the radical voice in Congress to silence the voices of um, of opposition sectors who were clamoring for um, you know for, to delegitimize the vote for delegitimizing Maduro's presidency. Etc. Etc. Um, and so, in that sense, it became uh, sort of an interesting role where Cabello was was very much through these um, these heavy-handed tactics in Congress, um, helping to uh, to prop up to prop up Maduro. Um, and the other thing that has happened since is that uh, Cabello was involved, or at least was implicated in a in a very high-profile 
um, scandal having to do with a recorded conversation from a high-level Chavista, which then, which was talking about the high levels of corruption in government and the tremendous amount of discontent within sectors of the military, etc. And then that brought Cabello into the fold of having been you know, somebody who um, who was close to this other person who was involved in the scandal. And as a result, um, Cabello sort of left the scene for a few days. In fact, he, he went off to Cuba for a few days. And when he returned, his profile subsided a bit. And that gave him a an opportunity to really reclaim the center stage. We should be clear for those who do not track Venezuela that when we mention Diosdado Cabello, he is the head of the National Assembly in Venezuela. I, That's correct. I, I, I want to give some some um, you a chance to deal with some analysis that we've had on this program in the past. We've had some political scientists and and also sociologists debating how exactly you characterize the Venezuelan government now post Chavez. And, and we've heard terms on this program such as guided democracy. We've also heard the term competitive authoritarianism. And so there seems to be a debate about is Venezuela still a democracy? Is it, has it slipped into authoritarianism? How do you feel about those terms and, and how would you characterize? I, th- I think the terminology can sometimes be um, uh, confusing uh, and it doesn't often serve as explanatory a function as the people doing the the labeling intend, I suspect. And I'll just give you an example. Um, Just a couple of months ago, actually maybe three months ago, there was a really interesting um, piece, sort of a a review piece of several, of of recent literature in Venezuela, trying to grapple with this tension between, on one hand, an explosion of participatory politics as a result of uh, Chavez's call to bring popular sectors into the fold, as as, few presidents had before in Venezuela and even Latin America. And then, on the other hand, the very evident and... um, uh, and indisputable efforts at centralizing power, what you might call authoritarianism, etc. And so, how do you meld those two together within a theory of democracy? And the term that was like, um, that came up in that conversation was participatory competitive authoritarianism. Now, to me, I mean that captures elements of um, of of what we might call, you know, chavismo in, in democracy in Venezuela, no, no one of which completely encapsulates the, the dynamic. Um, and it's really the interaction between those various facets that, uh, that, that, are, that give a sense of, you know, how vibrant Venezuelan um, politics really is. And so um, I think it, we lose a little bit by trying to pigeonhole um, Venezuelan politics in either an authoritarian or a democratic camp. And I think it's more useful to, to sort of see how these contradictions play out. On, globally speaking, sort of on, the, on a large systemic scale, what we see is this sort of tension between participatory democracy on one hand and um, centralizing currents, which you might call authoritarianism. On the other hand, what we see at sort of local levels, especially among popular sectors, which still constitute the bulk of Chavista supporters, a very dynamic um, uh, participatory consciousness that does not imagine the relationship with the state as one of necessarily antagonism, but as one of created, creating spaces for participation as none had been there before, right? So in that sense, I think it's, we both have, we have to remain attuned to the needs to have an institutional solid foundation. I, I entirely agree with that. And so as a result of that, we need to not lose sight of the sort of the authoritarianism that is very much part of the government. On the other hand, um, I don't think we can throw that, you know, the, the participatory baby out with the, the bathwater of, of general dynamic politics in Venezuela. You mentioned institutions losing credibility. Do you feel that the electoral institutions lost credibility 
and how this last election was handled, some say much differently than during the Chavez era. Yes, no, and that's borne out by some polling data that have come out over the last um, two or three months. What else do you think our audience needs to know about the situation in Venezuela? My sense is that what we'll see is a lot of mistakes by the Maduro administration, um, especially having to do with negotiating this balance between um, community and um, community uh, sectors and, and state uh, institutional sectors, which will then, uh, by the time the opposition um, is ready to, be, to mount a challenge, especially a recall challenge in three years, they will be in a strong position to do so. The government is stable in, in ways that it hadn't been since after April, but the position is still very much tenuous um, for, for Maduro going forward. Thank you, Professor Alejandro Velasco of New York University, the author of the forthcoming book, A Weapon as Powerful as the Vote. Join us today on Latin Pulse via Skype from New York. Thank you. And now a programming note. Latin Pulse will be back online next Thursday, September the 12th, our new day for our weekly online debut on Thursdays. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, Hente Flow, and Musica Q. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, writer Megan Eckhamel, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>